Hello and welcome to the Golf.com podcast. I am your host, Sean Zock, and today we'll be joined by the other main host of this podcast. That's Alan Shipnuck. Currently, I am in Chile, New York City. Alan is across the country in beautiful Northern California. First things first, Alan, how is life over there? Well, it's literally 70 degrees. Um, life is good. What can I say? Yeah, I'm jealous. Uh, well, you're on today to talk about a story of yours that is in the most recent issue of Golf Magazine. For those listening, that's the January issue. It's on newsstands right now. Justin Thomas, our player of the year, is on the cover. All kinds of great content in there, but without a doubt, the best story in there is your story. Uh, it's titled Trouble Off the Tee, and it details the life and death of Wayne Westner, who is a South African golfer that some people might recognize, but a lot of people probably don't recognize that name. And whether or not you know who Wayne Westner is by name, you're going to end up learning plenty about him by the end of this podcast or by reading the story itself. And it's going to be, it's already up on golf.com and I'm sure people are reading it like crazy today. But Alan, my first question is how did Wayne Westner or the Wayne Westner story, how did it land on your desk? Like most people, I think last year, right around New Year's, I became aware that he he had died and then he'd taken his own life, probably through Twitter, where I got the first notice, and it was covered on, you know, on all the golf websites, including ours. But it, everyone had one paragraph about the guy. You know, he'd, he'd won a couple times on the European Tour. He had teamed with Ernie Els to win the World Cup in, in his home country of South Africa, and it was just little tidbits. But there was there was an outpouring I detected from Els and others that there was a real sense of loss and, and, and tinged by regret. And it just, it just made me interested. You know, I went to his Wikipedia page and there was, there was a sentence there about how his, his at the, at the, at his absolute peak in his early thirties, you know, Westner's career had been cut short by a freak accident uh, where he was, you know, he was standing essentially on a uh, embankment that crumbled. He shredded his ankle and he never won again. So, Right away, you can you, you kind of your mind goes at least for me as, as someone who's always looking for stories to tell you know from A to B to C is like how how, how much did that injury affect him as a person certainly it did as a player um, and so not not too long after that I was in I was in Dubai uh, covering the European Tour event and I chatted up a couple South African players some of the older guys and as soon as I mentioned Westner's name it was like a jolt of electricity just went through their bodies. Uh, no matter who I was talking to, they uh, they had stories, they had outlandish tales, they had uh, they would rave about his ball striking and his physical prowess, and saying they'd never seen anybody hit the ball like that before. And so, right away, I felt like this was something that I wanted to really explore in a, in a, in a deeper, longer kind of piece. And it just it took a while. I was I was working on that big story about Donald Trump, and we just launched the knockdown. My my site within a site on golf.com, and so I just kind of kept pecking away at it. At the Masters, you know, I sat down with the the head of the South African Golf Federation. He told me some incredible stuff and and gave me some some other leads to follow. I talked to Ernie Els at Bay Hill, and and then we followed up with a, on the phone for a very long time. Uh, put the word out to Gary players people he called me back it was uh, it was nice to have the luxury of time where I, I could keep chasing people and and then of course you're know, reaching out to, to folks in South Africa and kind of the key voice in the story turns out to be 
uh, Westner's widow, Allison, and a lot of correspondence with her to kind of tell her the story that I was envisioning, and she had to think about if she wanted to be a part of it, and ultimately she did, and, you know, she, I'm really the only reporter she's talked to in any detail, and, and that voice was, was really crucial to bring in, you know, Wayne to life and to, to understanding his death. Yeah, totally. Now, a lot of things you just said are absolutely true, beginning with the fact that all the coverage included one paragraph, two paragraphs at the most about the guy. I remember it happening really, really early. I think it was January 3rd, maybe, of last year that the news broke. And as recently as like a month and a half ago, you go and and these news stories were not updated by any means. Even the ones in South Africa, like there was no reporting done about this guy. And I'm sure that that made your life uh, incredibly difficult in some areas. But did did you ever feel like you ended up hitting a wall? We're like, I don't know. What, what what do I need next to continue with this story? Yeah, the, you know, the first people I reached out to were were Wayne's children, uh, who are now you know in their twenties and thirties. Uh, he has two daughters and a son, and they didn't want they don't want to speak to me. And in fact, his son actually wanted to be paid for the interview, which is against you know our company policy. So that was kind of a non-starter, and felt like if uh, if they weren't going to help me. I wasn't sure I could really understand who who this guy was. I mean, he, he'd been out of golf for a quarter century, basically, and it was uh, you needed the people closest to him to really bring him to life. Um, but then I wound up getting Allison's phone number through a, another South African golfer who'd been in touch with her and and reaching out to her. And I kind of knew eventually that people would want to talk. I, I, there was some coverage in South Africa. And it, right around his death and it tended to be very sensationalistic and um you know i I think this obviously brought to life in the story but it was it was in the first blush of coverage there was some confusion about what really happened whether he'd taken his family hostage if if he had tried to harm them Um, as it turned out basically you know wayne was a very complicated guy and he had he had a lot of demons including depression and alcoholism and um, things just kind of spiraled on him there at the end. And he, it was a premeditated plan. I mean, he wrote a goodbye note and he referenced Romeo and Juliet. And he basically made a very long drive to, to go where, where Allison was staying with, with her, her son and his family. And um, he showed up early in the morning and, and kind of basically shot his way into the house and his family. They were, you know, they ran to the bathroom just to try and protect themselves and, and shortly thereafter, you know, Wayne wound up taking his own life. But in some of the coverage, it, it sounded like a hostage situation and some other things. And because the South African media kind of played up the most, you know, purient aspects of it, the family just kind of retreated. They were, I think they were overwhelmed by the attention and and the tone of the coverage. So I knew it was probably going to take some time for, for any of them to recover from that and and be willing to tell their story. But eventually it did happen. Yeah. And they eventually talked to you uh, and you begin with that part of the story. You begin the story with the idea of him writing a farewell note, a a goodbye letter on a laptop and how he left with a laptop and a nine millimeter handgun in his possession. And you, you said where he was going, he was going to his house to his now widow uh, and where various family members were. And I mean, 
why did you feel like you needed to start with that? I mean, this is a very troubled guy and you get through why he's troubled. Why did you feel like that was, I mean, the peak of his plight, really? Why, why was that your starter? You know, it's interesting how this story evolved because the first draft was, was very different. I, I really went straight into who Wayne was and his life and the, um, the tales of, you know, these sort of legendary stories that flowed around South Africa of what he could do to a golf ball. And I felt like I wanted to personalize the, who Wayne was and, and what he meant to the people around him. And, and that's how I actually started the story. And, you know, working with, with a couple of the excellent editors there at golf magazine, they, they felt like that was, they understood why and they respected it, but they felt like the story needed more immediacy and we really needed to bring the reader right into that, that moment where, you know, where Wayne has kind of descended into darkness. And so I went, I went back and, and, and wrote another draft and everyone really loved it and felt like it, it just had more, uh, what's the right word? I, I you know, I'm a professional writer. I, I should know, <laughs> be able to locate the right word, but it, it just obviously made for a more dramatic story, but it, it also, that was where the story had to begin. You know, that's, that's how all of us heard about Wayne Westner here in, in, yeah. in the golf world. And so, and then, and then we kind of, then we take a step back into who he was and, and, you know, this very sensitive, very philosophical side he had, you know, he was, he was kind of a, a seeker, a thinker. He, he, um, he, he studied and, and devoted himself to various religions. He, he used to spend days and weeks on end in the bush, just observing animals. He felt like the way they moved was could could somehow unlock the secrets of the golf swing. Much how, you know, yoga was inspired by by people watching you know animals stretch, and you know, Westner kind of felt like he, he might be able to glean the same kind of secrets. And he was just a really interesting, complicated guy. And you know, like all of us, he he was colored by his, his upbringing. He had he had a very um, stern, very, um, old school father who also had a drinking problem. And there was, there was, there was a history of suicide among the Westerner men and that, that kind of haunted Wayne throughout his life. And there was just, you know, it's, we, we, we all have our, have our, our, our demons and our shadows, but for him, they were particularly powerful. And, and he, in the end, he just couldn't, he couldn't run from them any longer. Yeah. And now, as I said, you start with the story the anecdote of him approaching his family with a laptop and a handgun. Um, but directly before that, actually the first sentence, you begin by saying Wayne Westner, the greatest golfer you've never heard of. And I love that part because based off of what Gary Player and Ernie Els and numerous other South African legends say, he, he was one of the greatest golfers they'd ever seen. But I'm very curious about the part where Alan Shipnuck in Dubai is having these conversations. Alan Shipnuck, who's been on the beat for decades now, you've heard golfers been sensationalized before. I just want to know why this one stands out. Like, who was talking to you and how are they talking to the fact that, holy cow, I really, like, I need to re, re, I don't know, immerse myself in who this person was because everyone is blowing him out of the water, like his golfing ability. Right. Well, it's one thing if you hear someone's high school coach say, you know, I, I've never seen a guy hit a golf ball like this. It's different when it's, you know, Ernie Els uh, who says that or when Gary Player says, you know, the way the way he got through the ball reminded me of Ben Hogan or, you know, Fulton Allen, the guy who played all over the world saying, 
you know, no one has ever hit a golf ball farther than Wayne Westner. These were highly credible sources who've seen a lot of golf in a lot of places. And so that had an impact on me. And I actually, I'm, I'm going to post this on my Twitter, just, just tunneling deep into YouTube. I found a one clip of, of Wayne hitting a driver at, at, when he was at his peak. Yeah. And it is an awesome golf swing. I mean, the the amount of speed and power, it just jumps off the screen. So we all, you know, everyone loves the the Bunyan esque long hitter. You know that that's always captured the imagination. Whether you're talking about Babe Ruth or you're talking about Titanic Thompson or uh, any other character from from whether it's baseball or golf, it just it's it's the most fundamental skill and source of wonderment you know watching the ball fly so so there was that but also this sense that you know Wayne was kind of obsessed with golf in an almost an unhealthy way um the way he chased the secrets you know it, it was Hogan-esque he he devoted his life to understanding the golf swing and he he had read every book and he talked to every teacher and he knew every theory and he distilled all of all of this knowledge into a swing aid that he called a total golfer and there's YouTube videos of Wayne, you know, showing, showing off this machine and it's really elegant, beautiful machine. And of course it plays into his final days because he, he had spent 10 to 15 years developing this and was, his dream was to bring it to market and revolutionize the way the game is taught. And a couple months before his life ended, he found out that someone in the United States had, had already, trademarked a competing device and you know Wayne was planning to go to the PGA show in, in January of 2017 and it, that all fell apart and, and shortly thereafter you know it, his life came to you know a, a tragic and violent end but it was the the dash dreams of of the introducing the total golfer is, is an important part of the story so you know this is a guy who who lived and ultimately died for the golf swing in some ways and it, it's really a powerful compelling a part of the story yeah the golfer I, I don't want people to to look at a name that they don't recognize and, and belittle it because the the stats at least at that time they, they back it up the guy won 11 times on the sunshine tour twice on the european tour uh if you could use your memory a little bit like did it do you remember thinking okay this guy's probably going to crack the pga tour soon i think a lot of people probably thought that yeah, I remember that World Cup that he won with with Ernie Els in '96 because that was my first year out of college when I was I was covering the game for for Sports Illustrated, and I wasn't at that tournament. But you know, the U.S. was represented by Tom Lehman and Steve Jones, the reigning U.S. and British Open champions, and they got waxed by what was it, 18 shots, and. This, this was the early days of the Golf Channel, but there was just enough footage where you could see the crowds were massive. And, you know, Ernie Els is already a known phenom. He'd already won the U.S. Open. And I had, to, to be honest, I really didn't know who Wayne Westner was until that week. And it just seemed like this triumphant moment for him and his country. And, and then all of a sudden he was just gone. It was shortly thereafter that he had his, his, the injury that, that more or less ended his career. And so I was familiar with the name, but knew very little about him as a person or a player. So um, I think probably, you know, any golf fan of a certain age will will remember, you know, Westner. He he made some appearances at the international 
on that old ill-fated event in Colorado. You know, that, he was kind of the era where they didn't travel that much. I mean, he mostly played in South Africa and he played in, in Europe. And this is before the WGCs and a lot of other things that made the game global. And so he's just kind of one of those great tantalizing what ifs. You know, what if he'd never gotten hurt? What if he could have made it in the U.S.? Uh, what what if he had had the physical skills that he possessed but was not so hard on himself or just could could play the game without without the anguish? You know, he's just – it's a tantalizing story irrespective of, of how his life ended. It, it really – could be a if he was you know it's nice to think that if he was sitting on uh, on a farm somewhere in Johannesburg uh, on the outskirts that we could go visit him and just talk about what, what what happened in his career and why he didn't make it but it just it wasn't meant to be for a lot of different reasons but uh, certainly that you know that that World Cup with with Ernie in '96 is what probably most golf fans will remember him for. Um, if you followed the European tour in the early to mid nineties of the sunshine tour, you, you knew Wayne Westner cause he was piling up a lot of victories and he, he had a look of a guy who, who could cross over and, and be a star in any tour the way, the way he played the game, it just didn't happen for him. Yeah. I, I know a lot of South Africans from what it, from what I have read and recall uh, reading from your story. It just sounds like that world cup was very meaningful just at the time in that country when, when sport was getting re-recognized as something that everyone could be a part of. Uh, one of the most interesting parts of your article, though, to me, uh, was a little anecdote, and it might be nothing more to you, but the part about him, it really speaks to the thinker that he was, is the part about him going with his caddy in every bag, uh, or every club in the bag, taking a caddy out on the course to play 18 holes, uh, and coming in a, a couple hours later having not hit one shot. Um, can you, I know that that's something I don't, I think people need to read to to really enjoy but can you talk a little bit about like i don't know who told you that anecdote and and how their reaction was yeah yeah ernie ells told me about that and it's a it's a famous story throughout all of south africa and especially um the golf club where where wayne grew up playing and uh where 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 that event took place you know wayne was so into the mental aspects of the sport which we know can can drive anyone um, to despair at, when you're at that level and you're the, the separation between players is really not physical; it's mental and emotional. And so, he, for some reason, he got the idea that he just needed to play golf just in his mind. And so he took a caddy and he walked all 18 holes, but he didn't hit a shot. He just envisioned where it would land. He walked off the yardage. He played the next shot. You know, he lined up the putts. And he come, you know, he comes into the into the locker room, and someone says, "What'd you shoot, Wayne? 52? And you know, no one got it. South Africa is kind of an old school macho culture, right? And um, what Wayne was doing was just so far out there. And people in South Africa never did quite get Wayne. He was just such a different character. You know, much later in life, he was diagnosed as bipolar, but certainly during his playing days. There was there was no diagnosis. There was no medication or treatment, and he um, he was a heavy drinker at times, um, consistent drinker, but at times it was very heavy. And so his behavior could be erratic, and people didn't quite understand him, uh, even those close to him sometimes. And so that was just you know Wayne being Wayne. There's there's a lot of stories like that. Not all of them made into into my piece, but 
he was he was an eccentric and he was a character and he was kind of larger than life in a lot of ways but you know taking a caddy and walking 18 holes and not hitting a shot that that if you had to summarize who Wayne Westner was like that's a pretty good way of doing so he he was he was chasing something elusive and he just never quite found it. Yeah, I remember reading that and absolutely laughing out loud and having to stop myself and go back to the article because the idea of that I mean it's so visual the guy walking out away from the clubhouse without uh, with his caddy and with his clubs and then obviously not hitting a single shot. Um, I'm sure his students because he eventually becomes a coach to an Irish player named Jeff Hopkins. I'm sure that he that Jeff learned a lot um, about who Wayne was. Did, did you learn much from Jeff? Yeah, Jeff was great. He's, he's this big strapping kid who, um, who Wayne took a, a liking to. He saw a lot of himself in, in Jeff who had tremendous physical tools, but was kind of struggling to, to build a career. And I, there wasn't space to really go into the, the Ireland years, but uh, people, people in, 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 in Ireland and, and probably throughout all of, um, the Lynx land, no Westner because outside of Dublin was the Wayne Westner, you know, golf Academy for almost a decade. And that was kind of his playing days petered out that, that became his focus. And he, he was a very well-regarded teacher and a lot of people passed through that, that golf Academy. And that, that's how he first met Hopkins and then they reconnected. And it tells you something about Westner that, he worked with this kid every day for 12 hours to try and get him ready for Q school for the Sunshine Tour. They did that for six weeks. It was like boot camp. And then Wester caddied for him at Q school. It was 110 degrees. I, I, it was either six or seven round slog. And Wester caddied every hole. Didn't take a dollar of payment. He just he saw something in this kid and it, it resonated with him, you know, the struggle. And then you know, Hopkins made it through Q school and he re- relocated to South Africa and spent basically a year living and working with Wayne. And you know, he told me a lot about how Westner's mind worked and some of the very unconventional ways that they approached the game. Like for instance, and again, this was in one draft of the story, but ultimately I don't think it made it into the final one because we just didn't have space for everything. But uh, they would stand on the driving range and, and Westner would have Hopkins literally throw his clubs down the range uh, on the theory that if you, you know, if you released it too soon, it's going to go to the right. If you hold on to it too long, it's going to go to the left. And he was just equating that to the, the club face yeah. and how getting ingraining that feel of throwing the club face towards the target. And they would do this over and over, you know, this poor Jeff Hopkins just wants to hit golf balls. And he's like literally flinging his golf clubs, you know, a hundred yards down the range and then walking out the walk of shame to pick them up, coming back and doing it again. Um, but, you know, it worked. Hopkins is, is starting to ascend through the ranks as, as a golfer. And uh, even even though he was probably most affected by Westerner's death, anyone who's not in the family, you know, hit Hopkins the hardest because they were they – were, they spent so much time together and he was with Wayne right up until almost the very end. So he was, he was an important piece of this story and he's certainly a guy, you know, I'm – I check the Sunshine Tour scores a, a lot more regularly, and um, Challenge Tour and European Tour qualifying. Wherever he goes, I'll, I now follow him just because I'm interested in, in his journey as well. That's great. I like that. Uh, I I know that I don't want to tease too much of the story um, because I want people to read it online because it's well worth the 
Uh, it's actually uh, 3,500 words, and it's well worth every single one of them. But there, there are obviously some very serious parts of it. You, you know, you talk, you go into a little bit about his brother, Wayne Westner's brother, committing suicide, about his father, who is, uh, for all intents and purposes, v- sounded very abusive. Uh, just various things that he dealt with. He went to rehab, obviously, as a heavy drinker, as you said. Um, and and I think anyone who wants to read about that should go in and read about that because that's very important. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of interested as we kind of close here is your reporting, isn't it a bit tricky when you're doing this and you're trying to write about someone without being able to talk to them and without being able to talk to some crucial people like his children? Is it is it dangerous or tricky that you you often maybe get a little too attached to one viewpoint of him? to his widow's views or to the views of Ernie Els or of Gary Player? Uh, or just do you run into believing something that you need to validate and you can't quite validate? Yeah, that's a great question. I, obviously, the more people you talk to, the the, um, the better off you are. And I, you know, I talk to Wayne's friends and I talk to guys from the tour. And of course, I talk to Allison at great length and um, other people around South African golf. So the more voices you have, you kind of get that plurality of opinion and, and that, that's very helpful. You know, I became very attached to this story because I felt so much empathy for Wayne and his struggles. Uh, he, uh, you know, you just talked a minute ago about all the things that he went through and it certainly drove him to greatness that, that, you know, golf became his refuge. It became his escape from, from all these other things. That's where he felt most peaceful and at home, but he could never kind of escape who he was or, or his upbringing. And, you know, there, there's a great sadness there. You know, obviously I felt it when I talked to Allison, I felt it when I talked to his buddies, um, just the sense that he was such a sweet guy with a huge heart who everyone talked about his generosity and his, uh, his willingness to help others. And, you know, he couldn't quite help himself, and it, it's a really, it's a really sad story. And I also, what I felt most was this pressure to get it right because, you, know, I don't think there's going to be another big Wayne Westner story. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is how people are going to learn about him, and this is how they're going to remember him. Um, and I don't think anyone in South Africa really told the full story in the first, you know, the first blush of, of coverage. And certainly for, for an American audience, there's, there's, this is probably going to be it. So mm-hmm. I, I did feel, um, wasn't as if Wayne was looking over my shoulder while I was typing, but I did feel an obligation to him, uh, and to the people around him to tell the story honestly and completely. And, you know, there's a lot to celebrate and there's, as you know, there's some things that'll make you smile and, and laugh as you read them because he was such a character and there's a sense of awe and what he could do to the golf ball. And, um, there's a sense of regret from the people who couldn't help him. Um, there's, you know, the, there's the shock and the horror of how his life ended and, and how it's affected those closest to him. So it's a very rich story. And, and I tried to get, you know, to, to, is an unblinking look. There's, there's. I'm not presenting the guy as a hero or a victim. You know, he, he, he made his decision, and, um, but I do, I do have empathy for, for what everything he went through to get to that point. And so, uh, it, it is. It was, it was a kind of a, a emotionally draining story, 
um, to write. I'm glad that it's finally out and people can can kind of learn about who Wayne was and they can they can go on this journey with him and, and with this story because he's just a really compelling guy and it's a really interesting golfing life and there's a lot more to him than just that one paragraph around his death and then the sensational aspects to it. So I hope people will take the time to read it because I think they'll they'll be touched by by who this guy is and, and who he was. Perfect. Well, I think I have one last question for you though. If you if you agree, and I think I would agree that this will be pretty much the Wayne Westner story. It will be the Wayne Westner stories, and there will probably be no others. What is the Wayne Westner story? Is it really about something? Is there a theme that you think people need to take away from it? Well, it's interesting because, you know, Allison and I talked about this at some length. And of course, she's been um, she's been through hell this last year, trying you know, losing her husband, having witnessed his death and and trying to make sense of of what happened and where she goes from here. And and her answer is she needs to help other people. She's been working with a, a trauma counselor and a, um, other people in the medical field did and her, her dream is to maybe write a book, but to certainly do some public speaking to help, um, you know, spouses of alcoholics, to help people who are dealing with, with suicide, to suicide prevention or survivors of suicide. And um, I was definitely, I've been inspired by her and the way she's, she's taken this tragedy and tried to turn it into something positive and uh, you know, she told me if I can just help one person, it will be, um, it will, it'll be worth it. It'll, it'll bring meaning to to Wayne's death. And you know, I think when people read this story, they might have, they might understand that people close to them are struggling and they need help and they can't always express it. And um, so, if, if this was not written as a public service announcement, but I, I do think that mental health issues and and all these other very weighty topics. They're not usually in the purview of, of a golf story, but it, it's all part of this tale. And so um, anytime you can raise awareness or you can offer some sensitivity to people who are struggling with these things, I think that that's a very worthwhile thing. So I'm happy that Allison kind of had a little platform in the story to talk about some of these issues. And um, so that, that that could be a nice, you know, small legacy from from this piece. If it, if, it, if it brings comfort to people who are struggling or if it gives them some impetus to help others around them or whatever it may be. But that that would be that would be a really um, meaningful, you know, outcome from from this piece. Yeah, and I think a lot of times those issues are a lot closer and a lot more real to people than they would expect or think. But either way, uh, I think we can leave it at that for now. Uh, thanks to Alan Shipnuck for joining me today. Uh, thank you to him as well for writing a, a great story uh, and a story that. You know, if you don't subscribe to these magazines or, or pay attention to these golf websites, you miss stories like this. This is not a story that is going to be covered on SportsCenter or a story that's going to run uh, on a nightly news. Not in America, that's for darn sure. And you, you kind of miss stuff like this unless someone like Alan gets obsessed with it, really. Gets obsessed with the reporting of something like this. Uh, is tripped off to the opinions of some of the best golfers in the world, certainly the best golfers to come from South Africa. Uh, until those people kind of trip Alan's interest, this story doesn't go beyond two paragraphs. It doesn't go beyond what it what it initially was. So you'll have to read it. 3,500 words. It's on golf.com right now. It will be on golf.com, I'm sure, into perpetuity. 
uh, and you can check Alan's social media channels as well as that of golf.com. That's it for me right now. Thanks for listening to the golf.com podcast. Let us know what you think of the podcast and the article on Twitter. Until next time, I'm your host, Sean Zock.